0: Father, we delight to declare Your praise right now. in this beautiful day that You have made, Lord, we ask that You would be honored as we've lifted our voices to praise Your name. And now as we come to Your Word, God, would You bless it. Would You bless the reading of it, the hearing of it, the preaching of it. Help us, Lord, today to see Jesus clearly, to see His glorious plan. And to respond to all He's worth, in a way that would bring you appropriate glory. We pray this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. We remain standing for a moment. I'm going to read from the Word of God. Our text today is Matthew chapter 26 verses 17 through 25. Matthew 26:17 through25. Hear the word of the Living God. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas Who would betray him answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. This is the word of the living God. May he write its truths upon our hearts this morning. You may be seated. All right. Was I too loud, Ricardo? Treble. Treble. All right. Well, praise the Lord. This is pretty cool. I hope you're cool, I don't know, I if, if, if the sun moves and the shadow moves, feel free to move around as you need to, I, hopefully you all in a nice comfortable place, and uh, we're coming once again to the book of Matthew this morning, and I'm going to do this, because this is weird for me, yeah, okay, all right, we good? This is better for me, I feel a little freer now, all right, well praise the Lord, um, We uh, come once again to Matthew chapter 26. We are in Passion Week. We've been here for quite some time. We're getting closer every week, taking a step closer to the cross itself. And as we're getting closer and closer, there's something very significant this week and next week that we're going to be studying, in particular the Last Supper. And. Throughout Scripture, one of the things that you constantly see all over Scripture is this theme, remember, remember, remember. There's things we're called to constantly remember. Why do you think that is? I I happen to think that we're a very forgetful people. Even those of us who know God, who, who love Christ, who have been transformed by Him, we can get so easily distracted and dissuade from, from the direction we need to be heading in, from the things that we actually need to be doing. And so Jesus takes something that was instituted by God Himself for the Jewish people and He's going to celebrate this with, with His disciples in such a way that He's calling them to remember something from the past that speaks of the p- current present that He was actually accomplishing. And I'm getting a little situated here as my pages are blowing all over the place. Give me a moment. We're going to figure this out. Um, let's just go back through the text here, and then I want to close with, with three points of application as we come to the end. So in looking at uh, verse 17 again, let's just see where Jesus is taking. Him. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread. Now it's important for us to understand what that is first and foremost. The, the day of unleavened bread is actually a, a part of the Holy Week. There that included the Passover. So it was a seven-day celebration that had been instituted by God for the Jewish people. And uh, they were to celebrate for seven days including the use of what, uh, what here is unleavened bread, but the literal translation is, is un- unleavened simply. The unleavening, if you will. Uh, Azumas is that word, unleavened bread. This is the ceremony that we're going to see in just a moment uh, taken from Exodus chapter 12 that the Passover was a part of. And he says, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And that's what's going to stand out to, to me today as I read through this passage. I hope it stands out to you. Two P words. Preparation for Passover. They're coming to Jesus. They're asking Him, where do you want us to do this? And so in verse 18, he tells them, he said, go into the city... To a certain man, and say to him, the teacher says, "My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples." Now it's interesting because when you when you read the Gospels and you see the different accounts of the Passover, you see here that Jesus is almost sounding kind of secretive, isn't he? Like, why why doesn't he just say go here or go there? He he's he's telling them go to a certain man, which is basically in the Greek translates literally to just like like so and so. Go to so-and-so. In Mark, he actually tells him, this guy's going to have a pitcher, carrying a pitcher of water on his head. And and that's how he would stand out because men in those days in the ancient world didn't put the pitchers of water on their head. The women did that. And so he he, he, was a guy that was supposed to stand out. And why is he being so secretive? We saw last week something was already taking place, right? Judas had already gone to the, the, the chief priests and the elders and the religious leaders and worked this deal. For 30 pieces of silver, he's agreed to betray the Lord. And so Jesus, well aware of everything going on around him, and not only aware of it, but as we're going to see, it's planned out. But he also is very wise about how human instrumentation is used, and so it's not going to be this grand public ceremony. This is going to be a private time for him and for his disciples just for them to be together. But he's got some very important things to share with them. So he tells them to go into the city. You're going to find this guy, and you're just going to tell him that we're going to go have the Passover at your house, which was you know, obviously indicative of somehow this man had already been prepared, whether by conversation or by direct action of God Himself. This guy already understood that he was part of the plan, and so he's going to welcome them into his house. Verse 19, And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. There's one thing in particular that stands out in this first section of of the passage and it's when Jesus tells them to tell the guy, the teacher says, my time is at hand. My time. That's the Greek word kairos. It's different than another Greek word that's used for time, which is chronos. Kronos is actually like, look at your watch. You see it's 1121. That's the chronos. That's the time of, of the day. Kairos is, speaks more of the moment. The, the, it, 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 it basically means it's the right time for something. Like, like the saying we have in scripture, for such a time as this. This is a prepared time. This is a, a, a purposeful time. Jesus for for many uh, the past 3 years had had uh, spoken in ways where in for instance in the gospel of John he kept saying my hour has not yet come my hour has my my time hasn't there yet but now is the time what is he speaking of he's speaking of the fact that in just a few hours he will be hanging on a cross accomplishing redemption and so he tells them in a secretive way to find this guy, they, they're going to prepare, in, in essence, a safe place for this final Passover celebration, this final meal. So the disciples go to prepare the Passover. But I think what we find is we're going to continue on in the passage, and, and not only this today, but in the coming weeks, that this is something that's already been prepared. And so they're sent to go prepare the Passover, and yet there was a greater preparation that had already been happening behind the scenes. When it comes to Passover, I want to just speak for a few moments about it because it's incredibly important for us to understand. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Flip on back to the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 12. I want to read a little bit of these instructions. And I think it will be helpful for us to grasp what Jesus is doing here, not only this week, but in next week as we go through the, the, uh, the Last Supper in depth. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold us an assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. And so we see the instructions to the people of Israel for Passover. This is right before the great exodus. He's giving them a heads up on this is what's going to happen. And this day is going to be a day to remember throughout all the generations. This day is going to mark, mark your lives so much so that it's going to be the start of every new year. This became the new year. The calendar changed. Everything began to change. And, and there's a massive reason for it. There was an emphasis here on multiple times you see unleavened bread, unleavened bread, unleavened bread. And if anyone eats unleavened bread during the seven days of this feast, did you notice what's supposed to happen to him? He shall be cut off from the people of Israel, it said. That's a, that's a pretty big consequence for eating a, a pita bread, you know, a, a piece of matzah. But God is serious... And He wants them to take Him seriously when it comes to the most holy of things, especially regarding redemption. Um, Passover speaks of this redemption. They were called to take all of the yeast that was in their homes, or the leaven, actually it wasn't yeast, okay? Uh, It was actually, uh, how many of y'all are bread makers? Anybody make sourdough? So what do you do when you make sourdough? Because, I don't know if you knew this, but you know, back in the ancient days, they didn't have little yeast packets. So they didn't pour it in and make it. They, God made yeast. Did you know that? Did you know there's yeast floating around in the air right now? That's how bread is made. That's how sourdough bread is made. It's an amazing process that literally, if you take water and flour and put it out, it's going to ferment, and there's yeast bacterias naturally that will get on the bread, and it will create your own sourdough eventually. And out of that sourdough, what do you do? You take a little chunk every time you make the bread and you put it away and you feed it, right? You feed it and it grows and then the next time around you take some of that and you mix it in the dough and it, what, it spreads to the whole dough. So that's how bread is made and that's how they made bread. It wasn't anything wrong. So there's, there's nothing necessarily sinful about yeast, okay? At all. There's, it, yeast is a gift from God that helps us make bread. It's speaking of something. It's telling us something. And what he's speaking of here, that in the Passover, he's letting them know, you're going to keep it for seven days with no bread with leaven in it. Why? Because you're going to remember something. What are you going to remember? You're going to remember that when you left Egypt, God's deliverance came so fast and so victoriously, you did not have time to let your bread rise. You, You took it with you and it was unleavened. And that's what you ate when you were out in the wilderness. And so... So there's this recollection that the unleavened, and in essence, I believe God is wanting them to know too, that don't bring any lumps with you, even on your annual celebration. You're supposed to get rid of every bit of it. So think about it. Sarah, you raise your hand. You make the sourdough. You got a starter, I'm sure, in your fridge right now. it kept somewhere in a cool, dry place, right? Every year, if you were to do this, then you were to take that starter and throw it away. It's gone. You're starting again. You've got to remake your starter all over again. And, and there's reasons why he's telling them to do that. And one of the reasons is that, that, that you're not to bring any of the lumps of dough out of Egypt. You're, not to, you're to leave behind every part of your lives in Egypt of slavery, of bondage, of oppression, of being under the rule of someone else. You're to leave that behind and, and, and it speaks of all of the, the worldly influences and the corruptions that were coming out of Egypt. Don't bring them with you out of Egypt. Leave them there. That leaven stays there. And so they were to remember that every Passover. The redemption of Israel from slavery that was rooted in this Passover event, which is then later remembered in the Passover festival. And the significance of, of, of Passover in God's redemptive act is, is seen in, in several different ways. Let me share a few with you. One, a new era. It marked a new era. God commands that Israel would reorient their calendars around this new era that has begun with the Passover event. Every year, this creates the new year. A new year, a, a new way of telling time. Also, we saw in the passage that we read, they were to take a lamb without blemish, a spotless lamb. And they were to take that lamb, and that lamb was to be killed, to be sacrificed. And the blood of that lamb was, was taken out and, the, and, and with, with a, a, a hyssop branch was put on the doorpost and the lentil of the home. And the blood of the lamb, in essence, then would cover the people who were in that home where God sent the judgment of, of, of death into the households. That judgment would pass over them and everyone in that household, covered under the blood of the Lamb, would be spared, would be saved. That speaks of a particular substitution. The the sacrifice of the Lamb speaks of judgment. Because of sin, something must die. The substitution of the the Lamb then is given in place of the people. It was either the, the firstborn in the household or the lamb that was going to die. And they offered the sacrifice of the lamb as a particular substitution. The the sacrificial lamb wasn't given for everyone. It was given for those families identifying themselves as God's people. And so the substitution was was a particular substitution. It was a definite substitution in that specific people were really delivered through the death of a spotless lamb. And that happened in remembrance every Passover. That happened in the the first Passover celebration. They would remember it every year. Also in Passover, we see that that, uh, judgment and salvation spoken of. It focuses of this provision of, of both salvation and of judgment. You see, Egypt is punished and the Lamb's blood is shed. Egypt had death brought upon it. And the people of God were spared because death was brought upon the Lamb. The Lamb's blood is applied to the doorposts of God's people, the provision in verse 7 of Exodus 12, that God Himself would pass over those who were identified with the blood of the Lamb, speaking of the glory and beauty of salvation. It also instituted a new festival for the people of God. Even to this day, Jews still celebrate Passover, but really there's only, there was only one Passover day. One Passover event. However, the Passover festival was instituted to serve as a memorial day. That God's people would, would remember that day. The day in which the Lord brought salvation and judgment and surrounding that remembrance was this seven-day celebration, this feast of unleavened bread, a festival that would serve the purpose of remembrance and instruction. And the Passover has so many important elements. I, if you've never been to a Seder supper, a Seder celebration, even to this day, I encourage you to attend one. It's, it's amazingly glorious in what you see and what we learn of Christ in it. It has all these different elements in it that causes us to remember the carpus, which is this little parsley that you, 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 you was symbolizing the hyssop that was used to place the blood on the doorposts. You, you have the, the bitter herbs, like a horseradish uh, type of a substance that you use to remember the the harshness and the bitterness of the slavery and all the different things that were a part of the Passover celebration. You see, the Passover is built around Really, four cups of wine, four different measures of of the celebration where they would uh, lift a a cup and that cup would speak of something. The cup, one would speak of sanctification, one would speak of judgment. There was the cup of redemption and there was the cup of praise. And as those cups were lifted, each of them was calling to mind God's I will statements from Exodus chapter 6 where He told the people, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He tells the people, I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you as My people. This is what was to be remembered every year that Passover was celebrated. As we think about Passover, and as we think about what it means, in just a moment we're going to apply some of these principles into our lives. Um, I also want to mention something that th- can throw people off at times because it, if you know your Gospels at all um, this talks about there, it seems like there's different timing in in Matthew and then in, in John for instance was this Passover celebration that he, Jesus and his disciples are going to celebrate on a Thursday or on a Friday and um, as you read through the scriptures, maybe, maybe you don 't care about that, but some Bible nerds like me do and when you're when you 're looking at those things it 's really simple I believe the simple solution is this that Jesus, knowing that he would be dead before the regular time for the meal because Passover was traditionally celebrated on a Friday, and that 's when the sacrificial lambs were sacrificed, um, which by the way. Jesus died on a Friday at the same time as when the sacrificial lambs were being sacrificed. It's amazing how God planned it all. And so Jesus, knowing where he's going to be in just a few hours from now, takes his disciples apart and they celebrate, if you will, in secret a day early. Now you say, well, isn't that breaking the rules? No, because according to the Jewish calendar and the way they tell time, The Jewish day begins at sundown. And so on a Thursday evening was actually considered Friday. That was the day of Passover for them. So there's no discrepancy as you read through the Scriptures. Also, there's something for us to notice about the Passover. In the Gospel accounts of the Passover, we see bread and we see wine, but we don't see any at least written indication of a lamb being eaten. We are told they eat... We're not told specifically what they eat other than the bread. And so the question is often asked, well, did they eat lamb? And I would say probably so because that was a part of the, of the celebration. But why do the Gospel accounts not mention that? Where is the lamb in the Last Supper? He's sitting there. He's sitting right in front of them. We'll get to talk about that more next week. But that's what's about to happen Jesus is taking His disciples through a Passover celebration that had been celebrated every year for for the past almost 1,500 years. And now Jesus is standing in front of them as the Lamb. And He's taking all of this rich history and meaning that God had accomplished in redemption and He's saying, it's all about Me. It all points to Me. That's where He's going with it. We get to keep talking about it more. But let's, let's go back to verse 20 and see what happens as they begin the Passover celebration. And Matthew points out some things that are particularly helpful for us to understand. He says in verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. Which, by the way, if you think of Passover or the Last Supper and you have Leonardo da Vinci's painting in mind, throw it out of your mind. That's not what it looked like. <laughs> it's not how they sat. They sat to tables either on the ground or just a little bit above the ground, reclining on some pillows, which is probably not a very comfortable place to eat for my thinking, but that's a cultural thing, I'm sure. So they're reclining at the table with the twelve, Jesus is. In verse 21, as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, which is a a mark of emphasis. He wants them to hear something in particular. Truly, truly, I'm, I'm telling you this. Listen up. I say to you, one of you will betray me and they were very sorrowful and they began to say to him one after another is it i lord is it me and the way that's phrased is it's it was asked in grammatically in the greek it's phrased in such a way that it it, it anticipates a negative response like lord it's not me is it right it's not me so they're each going around questioning you know, uh, kind of astounded and it, that, that one of the twelve actually would be someone to betray the Lord. And he answers, verse 23, he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And a lot of times, you know, people think uh, that that's Jesus' way of, of letting them all know. And I don't see it that way. I, I think this is Jesus letting them know that someone very, very close to me, that yes, yes, it's one of you. You see, in the Middle Eastern culture, to share a meal with someone was something that brought you to the closest of relationships. It it was something that was to, to be highly valued and honored and respected. And Jesus here, in essence, is rephrasing a psalm. Psalm 41 verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It wasn't a stranger that betrayed me. It was someone this close to me, one of my closest supposed friends. And so Jesus then goes on and says in verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He's letting them know, guys, all of this was prophesied in Scripture. This isn't something new. This is what Isaiah wrote about, this is what the prophets wrote about. This is what Exodus was all about. This is what the Passover is all about. The Son of Man certainly goes according to the plan of God. Scripture will be fulfilled, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And so there's this explanation of this is all according to plan, and yet Judas is responsible. There's this curse given upon him. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And he goes on and says, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Think about that. Non-existence preferable to being Judas. Speaking certainly of the eternal condemnation that is going to come upon Judas upon his death. To betray the Son of God, it would be better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas sitting there listening to this, says to Jesus, Judas, who would betray Him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Is it I? And again, it's written in such a way that it expects a, a, almost a negative response. And But do you notice, it's not, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Teacher? Not my Master, just my Teacher. Judas had already made his decision, and Jesus, I imagine, looks him in the eye and says, You have said so. Jesus' way of saying, You and I both know that it's you. The other Gospels tell us that it's at that moment that Jesus gets up and goes, and Jesus tells him, What you do, do quickly. I want you to see once again, as we saw last week and again today, what's going on in this mystery of Judas's intentions and actions and all of the things Judas is doing and Jesus as Lord of, of all, sovereign Lord, directing the steps of all of redemption. None of these things are by accident. It's an amazing how God is working out His plan. I also happen to see that perhaps this might be Jesus, an appeal to Judas of, you got one last chance to repent. And Judas slams the door on his repentance and walks away. Certainly within a few hours, Judas would show back up in the garden with the soldiers to arrest Jesus. We'll see that here in the coming weeks. But I want us to take this passage now, and before we jump into the further discussion of the Last Supper next Sunday. I want us to point out a few things of application. So follow along with me on your your outline. Number one, we see in this text a great betrayal, don't we? We see the betrayal of Judas, which certainly is the greatest of betrayals. We see him sell the Son of God out on the cheap 30 pieces of silver. We see a devaluing of his worth as Judas becomes a traitor and commits the ultimate of sinful acts to despise the very Son of God. But also, we don't see it right here in this text, but if you are familiar with the scene, and we'll find out more about this in the coming weeks, Judas was the the great betrayer, but in some ways, the other 11 also betrayed him we're gonna see that when he's arrested what happens to the eleven they all run what happens to Peter the top dog the, the 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 main guy Peter himself in cursing language will deny the very son of God not only do we see Judas not only do we see in some ways the eleven disciples but there's also me, and there's also you, who at times and seasons of our lives have not given Christ the worth that He deserves, have not given our lives to Him in the fullness of what He deserves. Now what is Jesus doing here? As He's planned all this, this is all part of the preparation and two things about the betrayal stands out to me. One, that it's, it's possible to experience Jesus. It's possible to be near Him, to be around Him, to hear Him, to listen to Him, to, to hear His words, to think about it, to chew on it, to spend time with Him. It's possible to experience Him without knowing Him, without loving Him, without truly worshiping Him. And oftentimes when we hear such words, we jump into the response of fear. And there's certainly fright there. There's certainly a, a sense of, of caution there that should be on, on keep us on our on our toes. But I would encourage you not to fear, but to resolve. If you're hearing me this morning and you're 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 being challenged by the, the thought of Judas spending three years with Jesus and yet his heart was hardened. To where he turned his back on him and sold him out. May none of us stand in the pride of saying, "Never me. May we humble ourselves before him and may we resolve to then give him the worship that he does deserve. You have that opportunity today. You have that opportunity to actually respond to his words, to respond to his person and his character, and to worship him with a heart full of love for him. Also, what is Jesus doing here in this this great betrayal? He's exposing in each of the disciples the absolute inability of human righteousness. Because the truth is, He must go to the cross alone. He can't bring Peter. He can't bring any of the other disciples along with Him. He has to go alone. Because He alone is the one who can bear it and will bear it. Thankfully, the disciples who fled will be restored. We'll get to see that blessing down the road here towards December. But in this great betrayal, we're seeing it clearly that Jesus alone is the righteous one. He alone can go to the cross and suffer as the Lamb of God. Secondly, we also see a greater preparation. We see a great betrayal, but we see a greater preparation You see, even as the disciples were preparing the things of the Passover and getting the the, the unleavened bread ready and getting the wine ready and getting all the elements ready, underneath the surface of all of it, not just this day, but the, the past generations upon generations upon generations, preparations have been being made by God Himself. It was God's plan from eternity past. Think about it. From eternity past, God's plan was that Jesus would be betrayed as an act of horrendous sin. But even in that plan, the betrayer would not be able to say to God that, that he was simply helping bring God's plan to fruition. Judas will not be able to stand before God at the judgment and say, why do you want to punish me, God? If it weren't for me, the cross would have never happened. You used me. I was a part of the plan, Right? But if Judas tries to make such an argument, it will carry no weight. Jesus pronounced woe on Judas and He said it would have been better if he had not been born. Why? Because even though a great good came about through His act of evil, it was still evil. It was still evil. And this issue comes up again and again in the Scriptures. And sometimes it confounds us as people, because it's it's dealing with the the omnipotence of of God, the all power and sovereignty of God. How God you and, and God and the sinful choices of human beings intersect. You might be familiar with the, the Book of Job. And you, you see in Job but how he had everything, right? He, had, he was a rich man, all his livestock and all this bunch of kids and all his health and what happens. It was all taken away from him, right? And Satan himself goes out to, to, to goes to God and, and says, "Well yeah, you look at Job, well, stretch out your hand and take away all that he has. He'll curse you to your face." And so what did God do? Go ahead, take everything away. Just don't kill him. So God gives them permission to afflict Job. And the question is, well, how did that happen? Did, did Satan possess the, the Sabians and force them to take the livestock? No. The Sabians already had sinful theft in their hearts. And that theft came out. For decades, they had loathed the wealth of Job looked down upon him and hated him. They they had to look at him, though, through the hedge of protection of God. And once that hedge of protection was removed, that sin came out. This is what theologians call, in essence, the doctrine of concurrence. Everyone say concurrence. 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 It's a big $10 word. One theologian describes concurrence this way, that God cooperates with created things in every action directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. That's what we see in Genesis. Genesis chapter 37 through 50, all throughout, and particularly in the account of Joseph. You remember Joseph and who, who had the, the coat of many colors, and he was the youngest of the sons, and, and his brothers hated him, right, because he had all these dreams. And one of these days, the, 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 the brothers ended up wanting to kill him. And instead, they sold him into slavery. And he's taken to Egypt as a slave. And years later, once he had gone through the the depths of of slavery and prison, but is lifted up by God to become second in command in Egypt. The one who ends up becoming the redeemer of Israel in the midst of the famine by bringing them all to Egypt to save their lives. And his brothers are standing in front of them in chapter 50, begging, please forgive us. Please forgive. We forgive the sins of us. And what does Joseph say to them? Don't be afraid. I'm not in the place of God. But as for you, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. In order to bring it about as this day to save many people alive. You see, at the intersection of the divine will and the human will, Two forces were acting with pure intentionality. One of those forces was the evil brothers. Joseph said that the, the things they did to him were from an evil motive sinful, wrong. But all the while that they were doing evil, they're accomplishing the will of God. Chew on that for a while. In his sovereignty, God used their sin. He used their evil to bring about the salvation of Joseph's family. Were they excused in their sin? No. They knew what they were doing. It was sinful. It was wrong. And they intended what they were doing. Their motives were out of pure evil. They did what they wanted to do. That's what motive motive is. We do what we want to do. They were freely involved in a treacherous act. But mysteriously to us, but clearly from Scripture, above them and above all of it stands the sovereign God who took their evil and didn't make their evil and turn it into good. That's not what Scripture says. God doesn't take evil and make it good. Evil is always evil. But God uses evil for His righteous purposes. Who can do that but God? But the sovereign King of the universe. And this is the same thing, the exact same thing that was happening when Judas sold Jesus. Judas did exactly what he wanted to do. The sin in his own heart drove him to betray Jesus. He he did what his evil intentions directed him to do, but the whole time he was doing all of it, God trumped him. And that is why By the grace of God, the Apostle Paul can write that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. This is why you can read of the the great inheritance of the saints in salvation. Why we can read in Revelation 13 about the the names that are written in the, the book of life before the foundation of the world. This is how in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul can write, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In verse 11 of Ephesians 1, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is the power of God. Brothers and sisters, if God were not sovereign, we would have no hope of the ultimate victory of righteousness. But because He is sovereign, He can even use the evil acts of men to accomplish His will. Thus, it truly would have been better for Judas had he not been born. His betrayal of Jesus was an unspeakable evil. But as we see the sovereign hand of God on Him, may we step back with the resolve not to be like Judas and with the resolve to trust the sovereign God of the universe to not and, and to not fear. We don't have to be afraid of anything. We can trust Him. We can be thankful in all circumstances. There's nothing, no such thing as luck, no such thing as chance. God rules and reigns and is in control. And then point number three, we also see a greater redemption. Passover finds its fulfillment through the redemptive action that is secured in the death of Jesus Christ. In just a few verses, we're going to be getting to the cross, creeping ever closer to it. And as we do, we're reminded that Jesus is the Passover lamb. This is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5. In verse 7 he says to cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He is the Passover lamb. His substitutionary death was particular and definite and effective. He laid down His life. He shed His blood for His people. And His death was the day of the Lord in which the salvation of God and the judgment of God was brought about. Jesus' death is this once-for-all sacrifice that delivered His people from judgment and from death. And a new festival was established as a means of remembrance and instruction, and we get to find out more about that a week from today. But as we prepare, as we prepare our hearts to to celebrate, to remember this communion, this Lord's Supper, this bread and juice that is in front of us, representative of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's understand that God's establishment of this new covenant of of forgiveness and and freedom from sin, acquittal from sin, should result in a joyful freedom from sin's destructive influence. Let us respond by getting rid of the leaven in our lives. Anything that that would pull us away from Christ and pull us into the world. I ask you, church, to consider, is there sin lingering? Is there sin that has a foothold in your heart? Are you tolerating it? Are you allowing it to remain there? Perhaps it's a secret sin. No one knows. You're hiding it well. Or perhaps you look at it as a small sin. Brothers and sisters, get rid of it. Let it all go away. Get rid of all of the leaven and make a fresh start. As I think of, of the Passover and the leaven itself, think about that again. All the leaven was to be removed from the house and so every year it was a new year and on that new year celebration, they also, after it was over, had to start fresh with their bread. Everything had to be made from scratch again. Make a fresh start. Rooted in God's redemption through Jesus Christ. May this day be a day of a fresh start for you. A day of renouncing sin. A day of looking to Christ. A day of eating His body and drinking His blood. A symbol that His life is in us. And He is the one who nourishes us. And may He give you freedom, true gospel freedom. Let's turn from our sins. Joe, would you come on up and we're going to prepare for communion. I love that thought of the new year linked to the Passover, linked to the death of Christ. And that's why we celebrate the communion every Sunday. In one sense, every Sunday you hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ is a fresh start day. It's a day for you to look back upon the week and the tr- challenges and, and trials of, of the, the times where you didn't look to Christ, where you looked to the flesh, you depended on yourself instead of Jesus. Where perhaps you turned away from Him and, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the ever so slightest betrayal. A time to... Once again, eat the bread. Eat and, 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 and drink the cup. And remember. Remember afresh that Jesus died for your sins. And he rose. He rose again that you might receive eternal life.